Good evening. I'm Paul Kennedy, and this is Ideas About Canada's Criminal Justice System. What we have doesn't seem to work, and everyone seems to agree that it's not working well, and yet we're not doing something about it. We almost need a Vatican II in this whole sphere of sentencing and justice. Uh, We need some fresh air blowing in through open windows. Since Roman times, justice has been portrayed as a blindfolded woman holding in her hands a sword and scales. The blindfold signifies impartiality, the sword retribution, and the scales the final reckoning that awaits those who violate the law. The image sums up the received wisdom about justice. But during the last generation, deep misgivings have begun to crowd around this remote and sovereign lady. Should she really be blind, adjudicating only the facts, never asking why? Or should she perhaps take off that blindfold and try to find out what's really wrong? Do her scales, with their suggestion of getting even, offer the best definition of justice? Must the sword of retributive punishment always fall on the offender's neck? These misgivings are being expressed by the movement for what has come to be called restorative justice. Its proponents argue that justice must be more than just weighing an offender's fault and imposing a corresponding measure of pain. They say that crime should be answered by a sincere attempt to find out what went wrong and how it can be made right. There should be consequences aimed at restoring or remaking the social relationships injured by the crime, but not punishment for its own sake. Tonight's Ideas program is about this new and at the same time very old approach to justice. It's the first of five broadcasts in which David Cayley will examine the progress restorative justice has made in recent years, and the obstacles and the objections that stand in its way. To Hurt or to Heal, Part 1, by David Cayley. Sometime during the later 1990s, the idea of restorative justice arrived in the Canadian criminal justice system. In amendments to the criminal code, Parliament made reparation and the promotion of a sense of responsibility in offenders, important principles of judicial sentencing. The RCMP and the Correctional Service of Canada both adopted restorative justice programs. So did a number of provinces. The Supreme Court endorsed the idea, calling the new sentencing principles a watershed in the history of Canadian criminal law. What had begun at the margins of the criminal justice system as a radical challenge to the ruling orthodoxy, had become, at least for the moment, a major preoccupation within that system. This series is an attempt to understand and explain these new circumstances. I'll begin tonight with a sketch of the ideas and practices that constitute restorative justice, and then move on in subsequent programs to look at a variety of objections to the idea that justice should be about peacemaking and not about punishment. Fundamental disagreements, as you would expect, will come to light. But there is one point, at least, on which all the people I talk to seem to agree. 
there is a crisis of public confidence in the existing system of criminal justice. This crisis is manifest in the widely held opinion that the system is failing, failing to deter crime, failing to honor the victims of crime, and failing to reform offenders. Some hold that this is because it's too lenient and argue for more toughness and less judicial discretion. The United States, which now holds something like two million people in its prisons, represents the extreme case. But a more moderate version of this same view is also widely held in Canada. Restorative justice represents a different response to this crisis of confidence. It argues that reflexive punishment is not the solution, but the problem. One of the strongest proponents of restorative justice within the judicial establishment has been Edward Beda, a Saskatchewan judge since 1972 and the province's chief justice since 1981. His support is based on this long experience, which has shown him again and again how little purchase the traditional objectives of sentencing have on the situations typically faced by the courts. He illustrated the point for me in a recent interview by describing a scene that might be found any day in the Saskatchewan courts. Imagine, he said, a judge who has before him a 19-year-old Aboriginal boy with several previous convictions who is now to be sentenced for breaking and entering. This young man has no job, no education, no material goods to speak of, and no real sense of his own dignity or worth. His parents are alcoholic, his upbringing has been violent, and his life is without direction or purpose. This is Mr. Justice Beta's question. What am I supposed to do with him? Well, I, I go to my criminal code and I read section 718 and uh, it says I must do uh, or should consider a number of things. The first thing is denunciation. I must denounce this offender's unlawful conduct. I have to send a message to him, as it were, that uh, our values are such that we will not countenance this kind of conduct. Well, I've got a problem. I have a good message to send, and uh, maybe I have an effective tool to send that message, namely jail. But the big question is this. It's a critical question. Will that message be received? This young offender has no idea what it means to work for and acquire material goods. He's never had any. His parents don't have any. His friends don't have any. He's never experienced the negative feeling of having goods taken away from him when they shouldn't have been. Why? Because he, he's never had any goods. So, how good are my chances in getting through to him by sending him to jail the fact that, look, you mustn't do this? Not so good, seemingly. So Judge Beta turns to the second objective which Parliament has set out for him in Section 718 of the Criminal Code, deterrence. You must deter this fellow from doing this again. How do you do it? You send him to jail. Well, I remind you, this is not his first offense. He's been, in, he's been to jail before. You'd think that having been to jail and having learned his lesson, so to speak, he wouldn't have committed the offense. Well, here he is again. Why is he not deterred? Well, he's really got nothing to lose. Uh, he has no dignity. He has no respect. 
uh, for himself. He, he doesn't have a job to lose. He really has nothing to lose. So um, if he has nothing to lose, and what good is deterrence? I mean, he's, he's not deterred from doing anything. That, in practice, that doesn't mean anything. Uh, all right? Deterring someone else other than this offender. Well, you may deter people like you and me who are not inclined <laughs> to commit criminal offenses, but we don't need to have uh, this young man sent to jail to deter me from breaking and entering. Breaking and entering is not a part of my lifestyle. It's not a part of the way I do things and the way I think. So you don't have to deter me. It's people like that fellow that you have to deter. And I say to you, if you're not going to deter that individual by sending him to jail, are you really going to deter other people like him by sending this fellow to jail? The next objective in Section 718 is to separate offenders from society. Criminologists call it incapacitation. But here, too, Judge Beta has his doubts. The argument is that, all right, we'll put this fellow away for, um, let's say, nine months, one year. So while he's there, he's not out in, in society, and therefore society will be protected for that period of nine months or one year. Right? So you may have uh, a short-term advantage there. But look at the long term. This is a 19-year-old kid, and you're putting him into a context, into a milieu, where there are not simply 19-year-old kids, but some pretty experienced fellows. There are fellows who are recruiting for street gangs, etc., within the prison. Uh, he's a pretty good candidate. He could end up being a member of some street gang when he gets out of the prison. Now, is that a long-term gain? Of course not. You've done not, not only him uh, harm, you've done society harm. In Judge Beta's view, none of the three traditional sentencing objectives he's just examined are capable of accomplishing their stated purpose in cases like the one he's described. So, what is to be done? A solution might begin, he says, with a rethinking of what crime means. We've always treated um, criminal offenses as the breaking of a law, and the breaking of the law has certain consequences. You could end up going to jail. But committing a crime is much more than simply breaking a law. Committing a crime is hurting, hurting someone, hurting another person, hurting another group of people, hurting a community, hurting yourself. Should we not be uh, looking at a criminal offense in that light? Somehow I feel that's... <laughs> going to produce a heck of a lot more good than coming down with uh, the fire and brimstone and saying, okay, now you're burned. Judge Beta's reference to hell here is not entirely whimsical. Our criminal justice institutions can be understood as a congealed theology in which crime has taken over the place of sin and the state's law the place of God's law. Within this secularized theology, Punishment is understood as the only possible way to honor and preserve the integrity and inviolability of the law. The judge is in a straitjacket, his only options to punish or excuse. 
Edward Beta is looking for a way out of this binary, either-or way of thinking. He wants less fire and brimstone and more scope. As a judge, I've always felt that uh, we had so few options before us. So often it was jail or probation, and that was it. And I don't want to be restricted. I don't want to be, uh, well, emasculated. I'm told you either put him into a jail or uh, put him on probation. And what does probation mean? Well, sometimes it means something, and very often it means nothing. That's putting me as a judge in a very, very bad spot. Give me scope. Scope, for Judge Beta, means a real opportunity to attempt restorative responses to the agonies that are brought before the courts. As things now stand, Parliament has mandated such responses, rehabilitation, reparation, and the promotion of a sense of responsibility in offenders are all now listed in the criminal code as possible objectives of sentencing, but the resources to carry out such sentences are still generally lacking. Here, for example, is one of Judge Beta's ideas for what he might do with his typical offender, but currently cannot. It may well be that what this young man needs for the next little while is an awful lot of guidance from one person, two persons, two elders who can set him on the straight and narrow. And instantly, these two elders may well need a young person around their home. After all, they are getting fairly old, etc., etc. And having a young person around their home may be a very good idea for them. Why don't we put this young man into the home of these two elders who are prepared to accept him and guide him and so on? Why don't we pay these two elders board and room for this young man? After all, we're paying board and room for this young man when we put him into jail. Why don't we use that money to pay these elders? Why don't we put someone in place to uh, monitor this relationship and see if it is actually working? Now, I submit to you that doing something like that will probably be less costly than putting this young man behind bars for the next nine months or the next year. I also submit to you that the dividends that we, society, will collect will be much greater than the dividends that we reap from putting that young man into, uh, into prison. Now, can I as a judge do that today? No. And that, for Edward Beda, is where matters currently stand. Restorative justice has been mandated by Parliament and strongly endorsed by the Supreme Court. There are judges like him that would like to do things differently. But so far, the political leadership, the broad public support, and the resources necessary to realize this new vision have not followed. Consequently, he says, I'm frustrated because nothing much is happening. It's kind of on the periphery, on the fringe, this whole business of restorative justice, but it's not, um, it hasn't come to the forefront. It's not assuming a uh, predominant role as I think it should. I'm frustrated. (laughs) 
Restorative justice is an idea as old as humankind, with roots in every tradition. But as a recognized option within modern criminal justice systems, it belongs to the last generation. One of the main thinkers who has brought restorative justice into this bold relief is Australian criminologist John Braithwaite. Braithwaite grew up in an Australian mining community in which there had been terrible mining disasters. He began his career in criminology, consequently, as an angry young man, convinced that only stiff penalties and hostile enforcement procedures could convince corporations to comply with safety regulations. Then, as his thinking developed, he began to recognize that sincere and respectful efforts at persuasion were often more effective than punishment or threats of punishment. He advanced this view in books on coal mine safety and on corporate crime in the pharmaceutical industry. Then, in 1989, he turned his attention to the theoretical foundations of his science in a book called Crime, Shame, and Reintegration. The book addressed one of the fundamental dilemmas of criminal justice, which is that punishments intended to deter crime often just make the problem worse by hardening offenders in their antisocial attitudes. The way out of this impasse, Braithwaite said, lies in recognizing that there's more than one way of shaming or disapproving criminal conduct. Shame that stigmatizes offenders does indeed make things worse. But there's also a non-stigmatizing form of shame which can sustain the offender's dignity and sense of belonging even while it disapproves of his conduct. The distinction opened a new path for criminology, and Braithwaite's book, became one of the intellectual foundations of the emerging movement for restorative justice. The key idea was that uh, the societies which have lower crime rates are the societies that are more effective at, at shaming. But this being effective at shaming seemed like a complex thing because there are all sorts of ways where shaming seemed to be counterproductive and make things worse and threaten people's identity and cause them to reject their rejectors. And that kind of shaming, I ended up defining as stigmatisation, which is an outcasting, rejecting kind of shaming, a disrespectful kind of shaming. And another important feature of stigmatisation is, is that it, it lacks closure. There's a ceremony to certify deviance, such as a criminal trial, but there's no ceremony to decertify deviance. So there's a sort of a permanency about the stigmatisation with stigmatising shaming. And stigmatising shaming makes things worse in terms of crime. And I think there is a lot of evidence for that. Whereas reintegrative shaming, which often makes things better, is a respectful form of disapproval. And it's respectful by focusing on, why, on the act, on disapproving the act rather than disapproving the person as a bad person or, or an evil person. So it's, it's, it's disapproval of the act communicated within a continuum of approval for the person as an essentially good person. And the ritual to communicate the disapproval of the act is terminated by some sort of ending ritual, which is about apology, forgiveness, reintegration, back into the community of those who, who love and accept you. John Braithwaite initially based his theory on the fact that societies in which community ties are stronger tend to have lower rates of crime. 
Japan, with by far the lowest crime rate amongst industrialized countries, was one of his examples. But in the same year that he published Crime, Shame, and Reintegration, 1989, evidence for Braithwaite's theory began to accumulate closer to home. In that year, New Zealand passed a new law mandating a procedure called a family group conference for young offenders who admitted guilt. The idea was to bring together everyone concerned in an offense, the victim, the offender, their family and friends, along with anyone else touched by the incident, to try to work out a satisfactory settlement. Conferences could demand apology, restitution, and reformation from offenders, but there was to be no prosecutor, no judge, and no jail. Various Australian jurisdictions also adopted this procedure, and John Braithwaite is now conducting a study of the results in his home city of Canberra. Offenders charged with violence, property, and drunk driving offences are randomly assigned either to court or to a conference, and the participants are then interviewed. They have found, he says, that conferences not only make a deeper emotional impression on the participants, but also provide a greater sense of procedural fairness. One of many questions about procedural fairness that we ask them is that, do you feel that your rights were respected in the process? And on the part of both victims and offenders, much higher percentages uh, report that their rights were respected in the restorative justice process than in the court process. Now, that's contrary to our rule of law intuitions, which is that a court is an institution surrounded by all sorts of protections to defend a rights. Well, the first thing to say is that in a well-designed restorative justice process, they are still all there. That is to say, the offender is very clearly advised that they have a right to walk out of the process at any time and, in effect, walk into the courtroom and avail themselves of all of those different kinds of ways of thinking about enforcements of rights that are available in a, in a court of law. But the more important reason, I think, is that there's a process control that's pluralised. That is to say, all voices are to be heard in the circle and the circle is to be constituted in a way so that there are, as it were, cross-cutting checks and balances. So an abuse of rights will result in someone speaking up against it. Now, an abuse of rights that occurs in the lower courts of countries, the production line processing of criminal cases can go unnoticed and no one will be given the opportunity to speak up and draw attention to it even if it is noticed. One of the reasons why community justice conferences can sometimes be more fair than courts, in John Braithwaite's view, is their participatory character. Because everyone concerned is granted an active voice in the proceedings, he says, people can actually assert their rights for themselves and for those they care about. Rights to really mean something need to be an active cultural accomplishment that rights that are only enforceable in courts of law are really things that are only available to rich people, whereas rights that are defended by people speaking up and say, hey, you shouldn't uh, do that in the way that you're deciding uh, this case and have enough 
process control to, as a stakeholder, be able to get up and defend the the person who they care about uh, in that way. It's also connected to the fact that the institution is a total inversion of the institution of the court. You invite along to a criminal trial those who can inflict maximum damage on the other side, whereas you invite along to a restorative justice circle those who can offer maximum support to their own side, be it the victim side or the offender side. So that, you know, the task of the prosecution lawyer in the criminal trial is to inflict maximum damage on the perceived integrity of the other. And that can lead into various kinds of breaches of rights, suppression of information that's relevant in a production line that says to one side, you you have no right to speak at this point. That part of criminal process can be dangerous in the sense we get tripped up and defeated by our own rules of uh, evidence. In the 11 years since John Braithwaite published Crime, Shame and Reintegration, restorative justice has become a worldwide movement but it has also tended to remain marginal, as Edward Bader remarked earlier, and generally restricted to what might be called the easier cases. New Zealand, for example, has used conferencing very successfully with its young offenders, but its adult prison population has continued to grow. Like Bader, Braithwaite acknowledges some frustration and disappointment on this score, but he suggests that at least in his part of Australia, gradual but steady support may be building. In Canberra, where I come from, a community of 300,000 people, where we've had now a couple of thousand conferences and then we have an average attendance of about eight at a conference, so more than 10,000 people in our town have been to one of these things. And our evidence shows that they have very high levels of satisfaction and certainly higher levels of satisfaction than in cases they've experienced in, in court. Then it, it's pretty hard to have a dinner party in Canberra without someone around the table having direct experience through one of their friends or relatives of this uh, kind of way of dealing with crime. And when we had a change of government to a more conservative government, it was a Labor government who introduced this program, they looked at the option of a law and order campaign which included an attack on restorative justice, but their polling indicated that there are actually a lot of people out there who who liked it, and it wouldn't be good politics. You're listening to Ideas on CBC Radio 1. I'm Paul Kennedy, and our program tonight is called To Hurt or To Heal. It's presented by David Cayley. In Australia and New Zealand, community justice conferences are beginning to be a familiar institution. The idea has also spread to Canada. Here the seed was planted by a Yukon judge, Haino Lillis, who spent a sabbatical year down under in 1994 and then wrote a paper for the House of Commons Justice Committee describing New Zealand's and Australia's success with this new approach. Shortly afterwards, this paper came into the hands of a defence lawyer in Sparwood, British Columbia called Glenn Purdy. Purdy had represented young offenders for a number of years 
and he was thoroughly disaffected with the youth justice system's failure to reform these youngsters. He convinced the head of the local RCMP detachment to try conferencing in Sparwood, and in 1995 they diverted 43 young offenders to what they called resolution conferences. The results were impressive, both in terms of community satisfaction and offender compliance, and by the following year, 16 other communities in B.C. had followed suit. The RCMP took note, as did the provincial government. Cleve Cooper is a career RCMP officer who was then the director of the force's community, contract, and Aboriginal policing services. In 1996, he was part of a Canadian delegation that visited Australia and New Zealand in order to observe family group conferencing at first hand. They were impressed by what they saw, and the RCMP decided to proceed with its own form of conferencing. When we came back, uh, we recognized that we would have to do some training, that this would have to be legitimized in some way by provincial governments who are responsible for the administration of justice. So we undertook to go across Canada and meet with provincial representatives, officials of provincial governments, and promote the idea of conferencing and its potential. And we did that in conjunction with a, a, a training that we undertook uh, across Canada by bringing experienced Australian people over to train us. And uh, from there we trained, I think there's, uh, there's probably over 3,000 people trained in Canada today through the RCMP program in the eight provinces and three territories we're responsible for under contract uh, for provincial policing. The Restorative Justice Initiative, which the RCMP adopted, renamed family group conferences as Community Justice Forums. The forums are coordinated and chaired by trained non-police facilitators and follow a scripted format. The police decide when an offender should be diverted from court to community forum. One of the results, Cleve Cooper says, has been a revival of community confidence in criminal justice. Public opinion surveys are unanimous in their finding that citizens misunderstand and mistrust the formal justice system. Community justice forums allow for many more people to become engaged in doing justice. We touch a number of people by using this process. And in one city in, in, on, on Vancouver Island, they reported to us that up to uh, uh, the midpoint of 1999, they had something like 47 offences where they dealt with 77 offenders and they were attended by some 450 participants who were affected by those incidents. So that you get an awful lot greater community involvement in these processes and knowledge about what's going on in your community because the people who are affected by what's going on actually see and, and attend and determine outcomes. So if you stack that up against our, uh, our formal system, you could possibly have a young offender represented by counsel going to court seeing no one other than perhaps a parent there with them, but nobody else in the courtroom, basically, and not anyone else in the community really knowing what has happened with an offender. And the other thing is that's uh, favorable with this process is that the timing of hearings and so on are so much more closely connected to the actual date of the incident as opposed to our, our court system, which could hear something a year or two years later 
by the time it gets in and through the process. And some people, in fact, some people say some young offenders go to court having forgotten what uh, they originally did because the process is so slow. Cleve Cooper calculates that last year, approximately 2,000 community justice forums were conducted under RCMP auspices across the country. He directed and nurtured this restorative justice initiative until his recent retirement, and he says that progress has been steady but patchy. Some officers have become enthusiastic apostles of the new approach, while others, as one might expect, have resisted. But this will gradually change, Cleve Cooper predicts, as new officers are trained in this approach and veterans retrained. A study published by the RCMP in March of 1999 indicates that so far, community justice forums have been successful by almost every measure. Very high percentages of victims, offenders, and other participants reported that they found the process fair and were satisfied with the outcome. Offender compliance with the conditions imposed on them by community forums has also been outstanding. Compliance orders for resolutions that come out of a community justice forum or a, a restorative process are, for young offenders, run at 97, 95, 97 percent. If you look at data for compliance orders coming out of the formal system, the justice system, they run at about 40 percent. And that says an awful lot to us about uh, what the process does uh, for a young person once he's been through it. These results argue that community justice forums make a much deeper impression on offenders than court proceedings. And this is one of the reasons why Cleve Cooper is so enthusiastic about the approach he helped to pioneer at the RCMP. Standard criminal justice processing, he says, tends to perpetuate conflict. Restorative justice tries to make peace. It allows communities to deal with incidents in a much different way than using a punishment model. It is a restoring model. It restores uh, peace and harmony and uh, tries to bring the person and the community back to uh, some form of, of health. And uh, it offers a, a tremendous uh, potential in that respect because you are not isolating people. And uh, it allows for an awful lot more empathy and the victims and, and offenders really come out with a much better understanding of what happened and what they've done and, and what the consequences are. And they can leave uh, and meet together, meet together later on on the streets of their community, which in some cases they couldn't do out of the, uh, the formal process. Because the adversarial process determines winners and losers, and people go away extremely mad if they lose. This process is win-win. Community justice forums, as Cleve Cooper has been describing them, are just one of a multitude of forms which can be broadly grouped under the heading of restorative justice. Another, which originated in Canada, is the sentencing circle. This is a formal court proceeding in the sense that judge, prosecution, and defense are all present, but the hearing is configured as a circle in which community members join the court to deliberate about what has happened and what should be done about it. The procedure draws on Aboriginal traditions in which the circle symbolizes unity and equality and has so far mainly been used in First Nations communities.
The first circle sentencing to be filed as a formal court judgment was conducted by Yukon Judge Barry Stewart in 1992. Around the same time, in Saskatchewan, Judge Claude Fafard began to conduct sentencing circles. Bria Hukalak was then a newly appointed colleague of Judge Fafard's on the Northern Circuit of the Saskatchewan Court, and she also began to hold court in this new way. We follow the Aboriginal traditions in conducting a circle. There's a, an expectation that people would be treated with respect and courtesy, and uh, we would go around the circle giving each individual an opportunity to say what they wish to say, uh, to express whatever feelings they want to express, and for people to listen. Listening is probably the most important aspect of the process. And through the process of listening, speaking, feeling, there's a space that opens for healing to occur and for the conflict to be resolved in a way that people are satisfied with the result. There's a space that opens, you said. Mm-hmm. Is that invariable in your experience? <laughs> I have um, experienced this in each of the processes I've been involved in, with the exception of one. It's such a powerful dynamic, the kind of connections that are built between people, the empathy that develops between the participants, and that's empathy for the victim, for the offender, for their families, for the community. It provides an opening for the beginning of a healing journey. It is not the end of the journey, it's the beginning of the journey. Bria Hukalak was appointed to the Saskatchewan bench in 1992, in the midst of the first flush of enthusiasm for this new approach to sentencing. During the first three or four years, hundreds of circles were held. Communities participated eagerly. One circle in which Judge Hukalak was involved in Saskatoon attracted an outer circle of more than 70 observers, on top of the 25 who participated directly in the inner circle. But in recent years, the number of circles has fallen off dramatically. The reason, she says, is that no new resources have been made available, either to support the work involved in organizing circles or to carry out their dispositions. Defense lawyers who had been organizing circles for legal aid fees that did not recognize the time or the work involved grew weary. So did the community activists who had been carrying out the decisions of circles. Offenders opted for the familiar, undemanding routines of the regular courts. This falling off seems to illustrate the same tendency Saskatchewan Chief Justice Edward Beda spoke of earlier the tendency for restorative justice practices to stall at the margins of the criminal justice system. For Bria Hukalak, it indicates that the revolution in thinking which she thinks restorative justice demands has not yet occurred on a broad scale. The essential framework of our criminal justice system is still intact. There has not, in my view, been a paradigm shift. There has been a movement towards looking at other ways of responding to criminal conduct. But it hasn't become the overarching vision. 
Our justice system is based on a particular concept of person or self, and that is the concept of the self as an autonomous, rational chooser. The concept of self in restorative justice is a relational self. It's a self based on connections, on culture, on dialogue. These are completely separate visions. Our concept of punishment is based on the ideology of individualism. That still remains. The uh, concept of restorative justice, in my view, cannot be an add-on. I don't think you can look at justice with one eye on retribution and punishment and the other eye on restoration. They're too conflicting. Restorative justice, in Bria Hukalak's view, is based on a more truthful account of the circumstances that produce crime and the circumstances that crime produces, and in being open to the entire situation of offenders and victims, she says, it offers more hope of real change. Transformation is one of the core values of restorative justice. Transforming how we see each other, transforming a negative act into something positive, transforming communities by showing how conflict can be resolved. But it also has to be about transformation of social economic conditions. For me, it is justice as hope. It's the kind of process that gives me hope that something positive can result from a very bad thing. It gives me hope that the victim can go forward and put the criminal event behind them. And I know there's horrible things that happen to victims and their families. And it would be silly to suggest that one process alone can resolve that. But it can assist. It gives hope that offenders can be healed and uh, that they can get the support they need for rehabilitation. But it's only a start, and we can't look at these processes as panaceas. In the course of tonight's program, both Bria Hukalak and Edward Beda have remarked on the fact that restorative justice has so far failed to move from the margins to the mainstream of the Canadian criminal justice system. But there is one province, Nova Scotia, that has a plan to eventually make restorative justice available to all its citizens. The province released the framework document in June of 1998, after consulting widely with people in the justice system and with local communities. The chairman of the steering committee which conducted the consultations was Halifax lawyer Danny Graham. He had been quietly sympathetic to restorative justice for a number of years, he says, but what finally pushed him into taking a political role was a local controversy over a sentence for dangerous driving. This fellow was driving a car he was driving it too fast and recklessly, and he ended up killing two young sisters at a bus stop in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia. And 
This young person was extremely remorseful for what he had done. Alcohol was not a factor. And he had received, as a sentence, house arrest for two years with very extensive community service work, the most that was possible under the criminal code. And part of his community service work was to involve educating other people about what got him in that situation and how they could avoid it. There was a tremendous public outcry against that disposition. And for me, it was the event that moved me from having an interest to taking some action. And I had some contact with the Minister of Justice. I happened to know him in a social way, and I'd never been associated with him in a professional way. And I called him on a Monday morning and told him about this concept of restorative justice and told him that it's an idea that uh, his department should explore uh, more deeply. And to his credit, uh, uh, offered that we have lunch that day, and uh, I've been actively involved ever since. The plan produced by Danny Graham's steering committee envisions a gradual introduction of restorative justice, first for youth in selected areas, then for all youth, and finally for adult offenders. It also foresees restorative justice becoming an option at all points in the justice system, rather than limiting it only to the more minor cases that have been traditionally eligible for diversion. Restorative justice had traditionally been delivered at the front end of the justice system through referrals from police and Crown attorneys, wherever it had happened. It was felt by the people with whom we had consulted that if you're going to be true to the principles of restorative justice, it should be available not just at those two entry points or off-ramps in the justice system, but it should also be available through a referral from a judge or even a referral from a corrections officer or someone even at victim services. It was also believed by this group that one of the failings of the notion of alternative measures or diversion, as it's often called, has been that it has only dealt with low-end offenses. The public dissatisfaction about the justice system relates to the high-end offenses, the more serious offenses. And if we believe that the delivery of restorative justice is something that is effective because of the principles that underpin it. It should be effective not only for minor offenses, but for more serious offenses. Such serious offenses in the Nova Scotia plan would continue to be dealt with by the courts. But following a guilty plea, there would be room for efforts at restorative justice, which could then influence the sentence. Options other than straight punishment could potentially open up. And this is what Danny Graham hopes to see because the desire for punishment, in his view, is a dangerously unlimited emotion. The issue of punishment, when it is undressed, is simply about retribution, in my mind. And retribution is based in the principle of an eye for an eye. It's feeling good because you whacked them back. That to strike back at somebody because they've transgressed our social norms makes us feel better, and because it makes us feel better, it is necessarily a positive act. My view is that that feeling has no limits, 
that striking back is a well that has no bottom. What does it accomplish for us simply to strike back in a, in a constructive sort of sense? If we strike back for the sake of striking back, and we send them to jail with other people who have been excluded from our society to the same extent, what happens when those people have finished and completed their punishment if they haven't learned anything from it? It seems to me that it moves us clearly in the direction of many of the states in the United States where the notion of punishing people indiscriminately through the formal processes of justice has led to a more dangerous society than they would ever have wanted to make. So restorative justice invites us really to stop and to consider what we're doing when we're striking back and consider whether or not we can do something more effective. A more effective response to crime Danny Graham says, would help to allay the anxieties that now translate into public demands for more punishment. Citizens would speak with a different voice, he believes, if they felt included in the administration of justice. But if the community is to gain power in this way, the professionals who currently monopolize justice will have to give up some of their prerogatives. And it is from this professional quarter that Graham anticipates resistance. The matter of conflict, public conflict, has been largely handled in the domain of those who are legally trained. And I have a concern that as the issues of restorative justice and other potentially more constructive resolution processes rise, those within the legal profession who have had a monopoly on questions of conflict will express their unease because it involves a language that they're not terribly familiar with. There is a perceptible shift in the power balance underway in crime and justice conflict. And it is away from those who are legally trained. I fully expect that we will have those from that community expressing in very articulate ways, concerns about what we may be losing in moving to this uh, potentially awkward period of having the formal justice system standing beside a, uh, a restorative, uh, something that is more victim-based uh, justice system. Breaking the legal profession's monopoly on public conflict, in Danny Graham's view, holds the key to restoring public confidence in the justice system. It is generally recognized that this confidence has waned in recent years, but this fact is often dismissed by people in the justice system as simply a product of public misinformation. To Danny Graham, it represents a much more fundamental popular revolt. He thinks that the public has begun to reject the very idea that the professional interests of those who administer criminal justice correspond with the public interest. And it seems to him, he says finally, that restorative justice initiatives can address this popular revolt in a way that the criminal justice system is currently failing to do. We've done a rotten job of reaching out and really getting to a core analysis of what brings people into conflict with the law. And 
what you end up with is a staleness in the development of ideas. The justice system has been hardly organic from a social perspective. It's been organic in that it's continued to develop laws in within its own paradigm, but it hasn't sufficiently put itself in the context of the broader social world that it is in, which does lead to the subject of restorative justice to a certain extent, because restorative justice has community people sitting at the table talking about what has that person done to that person and how can we come to a better understanding of all of this. And I think that that will have great long-term benefits in reducing the anxiety about what the justice system is expected to do. On Ideas Tonight, you've listened to part one of To Hurt or To Heal. This five-part series will continue tomorrow night and all this week. Tonight's program was written, produced, and presented by David Cayley, with the assistance of Richard Handler. David Cayley is also the author of The Expanding Prison, The Crisis in Crime and Punishment, and The Search for Alternatives published by House of Anansi Press. Technical production and studio direction tonight was by Dave Field. Associate producers, Catherine Hughes and Liz Nage. You can get a printed transcript of this series for $25 or a set of five cassettes for $39.95. To order by credit card, call us at 416-205-7367. Or you can send a check or money order to Ideas Transcripts, Box 500, Station A, Toronto, M5W1E6. The number for credit card orders once again is area code 416-205-7367. The executive producer of Ideas is Richard Handler, and I'm Paul Kennedy. Coming up, the hourly news, then the arts today, and between the covers.